And if you want to be a syndicator, go find a property. I'll put up a third of the money. You put up as much as you can and then raise the money from other people. I'll even give you names of my investors, but you have to get them. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Joel Friedland. Uh, Joel's story is genuinely remarkable, as it says in the bio. Um, and I, honestly, as I said before we started recording, Joel, I, I really, even just reading it is very interesting, but I, I think it's going to be way more interesting for the listener to hear the story in your words. So I will first start by just saying thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm super excited to to get to chat. Uh Ditto. I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah, awesome. Will you give us your background? Tell us your story. Uh, I, I know uh, even this landscaping business that started when you were 14. I'm, I'm interested in all of it. So give us give us a bit of your story and, and uh, then we'll dive in. Sure. So uh, I grew up in a Chicago suburb called Highland Park. Unfortunately, we're very well known uh, in the media because that's where the 4th of July shooting was last year. It's a really nice community uh, about a half hour north of Chicago. And uh, when I was a kid, I became an entrepreneur at a very young age. I was 14 and I went uh, door to door in my neighborhood asking um, husbands, wives, families if I could cut their lawn and take care of their uh, trees and bushes and I was cold calling door to door to get these assignments to be their landscaper. And I ended up in one weekend getting 70 uh, homeowners to say yes. <laughs> so I was 14. I couldn't even drive. So just to go buy the lawnmowers and buy all the equipment, I had to hire older kids who had driver's licenses to use their station wagons and their what at the time, what would have been um, a GMC SUV. Yeah. And so uh, it was such a big business that I had to hire kids. I hired maybe 30, uh, 35 high school and, and middle school kids to help cut lawns and trim bushes. We were all out there. I was overseeing the whole thing. It was truly a disaster because <laughs> you, a person who's 14 is not prepared to run a business with yeah. employees. I had to buy liability insurance. So I called my my friend whose father was a an insurance broker. And I said, I need liability insurance in case a kid is cutting a lawn and uh, the blade cuts their foot off. He says, oh, you do need liability insurance. So he said, but I don't know how I sell it to you. You're not incorporated. I don't know who's, who's insured. So I had to incorporate. Anyway, we... That went on for years. I was a landscaper for years and the business got better and better as I made more and more mistakes and figured out how to correct them. 
And then I graduated from the University of Michigan and decided that real estate was the career for me. So good at cold calling, I, I made a phone call to a company that was owned by a family. I'm now 64. It was a father who at the time was 64, his two sons in their 20s, and a daughter that had 84 industrial buildings in the Chicago area. It was 1981, interest rates were 17%. And when I went to interview, the father said, how would you fill up my 10 vacant buildings out of my 84 buildings? And I said, well, let me tell you the story of my landscape business. I went cold calling and what I would do is I would go to industrial parks where you have the empty buildings and I'd knock on doors of all the industrial companies and ask them if they would consider moving to the vacant building that I'm handling down the street. And I did that and it worked out well and I loved the business. I was living at home with my folks and very quickly after one year, uh, I was successful enough to go get an apartment in Lincoln Park in the city, which was great. And I worked for this family and they were my mentors. They were amazing. Steve Podolsky was the name of the son and a fellow named Richard and the dad Milt took me under their wing and they taught me the business and I became a real estate person uh, over a 10 year period that really picked up a lot of the ins and outs of leasing and selling and talking about financial statements and what companies do in the building, what kind of products they manufacture or distribute because industrial is, is a business where the buildings house companies that make things with machines. And that's pretty much what I focused on. And in the 10th year, I realized that Milt made most of his money by being an owner, not being an agent. And I went to him and I said, I want to be a syndicator like you. He was a syndicator before the name syndicator even was anything that people knew. In the 1960s, he brought in dozens of investors into deals. And one of the first things he said to me was, well, I'm going to send you to pick up a check from this guy, Victor, go to his house and talk to him when you get the check about why he's investing with me. And if you want to be a syndicator, go find a property. I'll put up a third of the money. You put up as much as you can and then raise the money from other people. I'll even give you names of my investors, but you have to get them. So I went and I did my first deal. It was $560,000 in a suburb called Gurney, Illinois. It was a 14,000 foot building. And I raised money from 20 something people. It, it was about 20,000 each, few people put in more. And that was my first deal. And it felt good and it felt right. Uh, we went and did our second one, which was about twice as big. And then we did a third one and unfortunately, uh, the, the economy cycles. And right when I did my third deal, it cycled down. Got worse than I, than I had seen it even in 1981. It was worse because we were owners of buildings and we had risk on the table. Yeah. In 1981, I, I witnessed it as an agent, but I was only spending my time not investing our money. So I learned, uh-oh, <laughs> what do we do to be safe so we don't lose people's money? And I started doing deals with a, a very low amount of leverage. And then in, in 2008, 
Well, first of all, I started my own business. I left the Podolsky family. I wanted them to adopt me and they said no. <laughs> so I went with three other guys and we started our own business. Um, we called it Epic Savage. Uh, my partner actually was a guy named Lou Savage who lived in LA, probably not too far from where you are now. His two kids were on TV. They had one son had a TV show called uh, The Wonder Years, and the other son had a show called Boy Meets World. Yeah, uh, I know. Savage I know you're talking about. Yep, Fred Savage. So, I, I guess I don't know the other one's name, but uh, yeah, when you ben, said that, I was like, why? Well, I know that running name. for Congress. Ben's running for Congress, probably in your district. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was one of my four partners, and he was in Chicago originally, but because his kids were on TV, he and his wife and his daughter and two sons moved to LA and he sort of handed off his investors and his clients to me. So that gave me a really good running start when we started the business. He was only there for about seven months before he, he moved to LA to be with his family. And over the years, uh, we, we bought or developed about 85 buildings up until 2008. And in 2008, when the global financial crisis hit, I had 108 loans, all with guarantees. I had dozens and dozens of buildings. I had hundreds of investors. And the whole thing was imploding in front of me. Just everything went bad. Tenants were asking for rent reductions. They were going out of business. If we had a vacancy where a lease was coming up, a tenant would move out of, out of a building and it would be vacant. And unfortunately, in industrial, in, in our world, they're single tenant buildings. And in a tough time, if you have debt on a building where it goes vacant, you can't pay your mortgage because there's no rent yeah. coming in. It's not like multifamily or self-storage uh, where you've got lots of tenants and if one or two leave, you're okay. So... It was a struggle. I, I fell into a deep emotional depression. And see that couch back there? Yeah. I was on it and couldn't get off it. And I was so, so deeply injured emotionally that I probably, I can't say for sure because I, I thought about it. I was probably suicidal to some degree and my wife sat in that chair and made sure that I didn't go in the bathroom and take pills I, I'm very uh, conscious of the emotional toil that a an, an economic mistake that affects your family and how you're living your lifestyle and who you are and and your reputation what that can do to a person I learned the hard way and after that, I decided I was going to do deals with uh, no mortgages as a way to be safer. So that's my story. And lately, uh, I've been doing deals with either very low mortgages or no mortgages at all, all industrial buildings, all manufacturing uh, buildings. Okay. So much to unpack there. I, <laughs> that's, that's an incredible story in, in, in like really really relevant to what what we're uh dealing with right now too in in the market cycle but i i, I want to even go back just to the this you know 
entrepreneurial uh, endeavor at 14, you know, going out and, and getting uh, 70 customers in a weekend and, and then running a business at 14. Like it's, it's, I mean, I've, I haven't heard the story a lot, but I, I've heard like there are people that just like kind of get into that business mode right away. And like, I did all the stuff when I was a teenager too, like going out, doing construction, doing lawns, all of that. But I didn't, I didn't make a business out of it. It was just like, how can I make extra money? And then I never thought about like, oh, I'm going to do this at scale at 14. I'm going to, I'm going to sign up all these people and go hire my friends. And so I, I just wonder like, what was your, I guess, what, what was your thinking? And, and, you know, so many people, you know, cold calling is a big part of sales. So many people, uh, I think, struggle with it. And it seemed like it was just a natural thing for you to step into. What was, what was your idea? Who did you, did someone, you know, sort of put that in your head? Like, how did that all come to fruition in the beginning where you just said, I'm, I'm going to go do this thing? Yeah, it, it's very complicated. Actually, there's a, a whole um, history behind why I did that and how it happened. When I was a little kid, I was very shy. You know, sometimes you have a kid who just sort of hangs on to his mother's dress or his yeah. mother's, you know, whatever she's wearing. I was I was a very shy kid. And I remember my father when I was maybe seven saying to me, telling me, hey, that guy uh, stand down the street just said hello to you and you kind of shrugged away. He said, when someone says hello, you need to look at them in the eye and you say, hello, hi. I didn't even know how to do that. I was so shy and just yeah. not confident. And as I got older, I really didn't get that much less shy until I was really in... Um, middle school. In a middle school, for whatever uh, reason, I can't even tell you what happened. Um, I, I saw that some of my friends' parents had their own businesses. And that my, my, my parents, my dad was a psychologist, and my mother was a psychiatric social worker who uh, saw people uh, counseling, they, they did counseling. And we didn't have a lot of money and some of the neighbors and some of the other people had these businesses and they, one guy bought a farm in Wisconsin and another one uh, went on trips to Florida for Christmas break. And I hadn't even been on an airplane. We just, we were a family that stuck close to home. And I saw that these, these few people that I admired had their own businesses. And I actually went and talked to them. And I said, I'm thinking of starting a lawn business because I need spending money. When I want to buy something, my parents often say, no, we don't have the money for that. And I went to see this one guy in particular down the street and he was in a business. He was a printer. He had a printing business. And I said, I'd like to, how do you, how do you run your business? He says, well, it's all about having customers. <laughs> I said, oh, he says, if you don't have a customer, you don't have a business. I said, oh, well, if I went into the lawn business, I would need customers. He said, yeah. And to get customers, you have to ask people 
uh, to hire you and you have to come across like somebody that's going to do a good job and take care of them. And he said, you want to practice on me? And I did. And he says, you can cut my lawn this year. And that was my first one. And I said, wow, that, that wasn't too bad. And that's, that was the week that I went out that weekend. My parents were out of town. They were on vacation when I went door to door doing this. And I just couldn't stop. I got, I became like addicted to going yeah. to the next place and the next place. And I had my pitch you because know, I practiced on the printer guy and I had my pitch down and I went out and I gave my pitch, which was, I'll cut your lawn. I'll do it for $8 a week. I probably got hired because I was at $8 a week and the professional guys in the area were probably charging $18 a week. Maybe that's why I got 70 lawns. I was too cheap. <laughs> um, and I didn't make a lot of money, but I had a lot of lawns. And so I learned a lot about business at that age, how to get it and, and how to price it and how not to price it. And today's no different. When I find investors for a, a building that we're buying, I give my pitch, I explain it, I talk about what the return is on investment that they're gonna get and what our strategy is, how long we're gonna hold it and who the tenants are uh, and how long the tenant's been there and what business they're in. So I, I come up with a pitch and I say, and, and we like to shoot for 8% cash on cash dividends in real estate, we call them distributions. And that's what I've been doing. And I, when I raise money for a deal, usually I get somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 70 investors, depending on the size of the deal. And I write up uh, what's called a private placement memorandum with the help of a lawyer and, and our accountants. And I take the, the pitch book, I, I print them. So I have printed ones but I also have them on the internet so I can send them through email. And I give the pitch and people join me because I've been doing this for 40 something years and I'm a safety freak. And a bunch of people like the idea of having staying power in a deal and not feeling like they're at risk of losing their equity. So yeah. it's pretty much the same thing I did cutting lawns and going door to door to find tenants. Now I go door to door and so do my employees to find buildings to buy. And then we marry the buildings that we find with the group of investors. And I, I help some of the younger, newer people learn how to make their pitch to bring an investor in. Yeah, it, it's uh, now, you know, at, at this point you have years of experience. It's, it's your pitch is probably a whole lot easier uh, but the the fundamentals, essentially, of <laughs> making that pitch, presenting, you know, your business or your real estate uh, opportunity, whatever it is, like the, the the fundamentals don't necessarily change. I think that's just a really a fascinating story, and and you know, sort of, well, it's fortunate that you had people to go to, but also, you know, the the, um, I guess initiative to go out and, and see, seek out mentors and, you know, find people that could, you saw that, that they had businesses, they were doing this and, you know, kind of go in and just actually talk to them about it. And what do you do? And I think there's, there's, there's a lot to be learned, not just for 14 year olds, like for really uh, kind of anybody that is, um, you know, looking into getting into business or, or real estate or, or otherwise. Um, so you've been through 
a couple of downturns. Four, four downturns. So you, you said that at one point the, the this was before two thousand eight. So the the first one you sort of talked about was where um, it kind of shifted your focus on debt to something much lower leverage. When when was that? After two thousand eight. Okay. After 2008, I, I decided that I don't have the tolerance for the kind of emotional um, turmoil that I went through in 2008. And I felt that there were probably like-minded people who feel really terrible when they lose money. And I'm not looking for people who want to get rich. I'm looking for people who have money that, that they've earned over the years or inherited or whatever, who just don't want to lose it. That's what that's what's most important to, to the group of investors that I have. They, they want to make a good return. They want a good deal. But they have so many choices of where they can invest their money, whether in, today it's in uh, treasury bills at five and a quarter percent or higher uh, short term or long term treasury bonds at 4.8%. You know, I have to know what it is that they're looking at as an alternative. Stocks, a lot of economists think that the, that the market is at a very high multiple and that there's uh, a likelihood that there's going to be some sort of a correction. Uh, bonds. So it's really a matter of each person figuring out what their portfolio needs to look like, often with the help of a professional advisor. And what I bring them is a level of diversification into something that gives them current income right away that goes on for a long period of time that theoretically escalates every year. That's our, our rents in our industrial buildings have escalators on an annual basis. And so they're looking at what I'm bringing them and how much they trust me. You know, it's, it, you're not going to invest with someone unless you trust the person. And I've been through 40 plus years, four cycles. I've made a lot of mistakes and I'm not afraid to tell people that real estate's really hard and it's extremely risky. And these people who say, oh, real estate's easy. You make a fortune. They're, they're uh, unrealistic. Uh, in some cases, they're just making it up. They're hoping that that's true, but it really isn't. It's only true when the market's going up and the best thing you can do to protect yourself is mitigate your risk. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's fantastic um, perspective. And I, and I th it's funny that there's a lot of uh, in, in the investing world, you know, people that are presenting um, deals and, and, you know, sort of talking to passive investors and saying, you know, that you have to, people always point to track record. And I, I find it fascinating. And I, and I, I'll put myself in this group, like I haven't been doing it for 40 years. But if you look at, you know, people that started in 2018, 2019, and they're, they're presenting a track record, like the track record is that the market went up tremendously. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not, that doesn't mean that you're not a good operator or that you you don't know what you're doing. But, but the reality is it was, it was pretty hard to fail, you know, for three, four, five years, maybe. Um, maybe even longer than that after, you know, sort of recovery from, from 2008. And, and so I think when, I, I think that's a important distinction when you talk about track record, 
Joel, you have a track record. Like you, <laughs> you actually have been through it multiple times. And, and that's, to me, that's a, a substantial, um, when you, when passive investors are looking at things like that, and you want to say, you know, does this person have a track record? You, you probably need to look at when their record is from and how that relates to the market. Like it was easy to be a stock investor for, you know, many years as well and, and do well there. It's just, you know, and again, it's like, it's not to say that people that did well during up, up markets aren't good, aren't good operators, but, but the reality is, is, is you are helped, you are helped or you are hurt by the market regardless of that fact. I, I, I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, kind of you mentioned how hard it was, um, you know, after 2008 and when things uh, took took that turn. And I, because I think, I guess I think it's it's something that if you really care about what you're doing, you care about your investors, you care about, you know, sort of uh, performing for them that the, the way that that we say that we're going to, then it's going to affect you. At least <laughs> I feel it's going to affect you in the way that you said, because I, you know, I haven't been able to get off a couch, but there's been a lot of sleepless nights during this market lately. And, and because I, because I care, I want to, I want to deliver or exceed what I said I would do for my investors. And so it's kind of, it, it, it weighs on you. And, and I, and I think that it's, uh, maybe good for for people to I, I, I thank you for sharing that that you went through that I don't necessarily want to make you dive back into that you know bad time but just in the sense that I think it's a, an important thing for people to understand and in that you know th that it is uh if you're thinking about being an active real estate investor one you really you really have to care if you're taking on investors two there's going to be times like this there's going to be, it's going to be really, really hard. And if you're, um, if you're unwilling, unable to kind of weather those storms, uh, then, then maybe it's, maybe it's not the right way to go. I, I guess it's just the painting the picture that it's, it's not all, um, sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, I, I can talk to that point. Um, when I watch some of your clips. I've, I've watched dozens of your clips. I, I think you do a great job where you put those out and you have the 20 seconds of somebody or 30 seconds, whatever that is, that, that, that where you can continuously listen to people. What, what really grabs my attention is when someone talks about a challenge, not how great they are, but a challenge, like something that, that was really difficult for them and how they overcame it. And I think that one of the things that I bring to the table for my investors is I've had a lot of challenges that I've had to overcome and you learn to be resilient, but maybe more important, you know, I, I was thinking about your, the whole title and concept of what you do and why we do things. Yeah. And the why in my case, I could talk about that is having really good judgment. Because what puts you on the couch isn't when you make a mistake. It's when you're ashamed of something that you did. Because shame is what causes depression, in my opinion. For, yeah. Sometimes it's chemical, right? There are people who just, they have 
a chemical depression problem. And I, and I recognize that. Uh, and I think that you can create a chemical depression where you spiral down. And the way for me to avoid that is to have really, really good judgment. So what I've tried to figure out is what's the construct that have the best possible judgment. And the answer I've come up with is to have a group of very capable, smart people as advisors. So I've created an advisory group of eight investors who are in my deals. And what I do is I talk to them individually and then at the end as a group where I say to them, throw me the toughest question about this new deal. Try to trip me up and figure out why we shouldn't do this deal. And if I do that much homework and that much due diligence, including hiring people to do inspections, hiring HVAC uh, contractors to check out all the equipment, hire a roofer, make sure there's not flooding, understand uh, the zoning, understand the municipality and where they may throw some hurdles at us. Just understanding the details of a deal and having good judgment. In, in order to have good judgment, one of the guys says uh, the, the best way to get a good answer is to ask the best question. So you want to have great questions that really a question is half the answer already. If you don't ask the question, you miss the whole thing. Yeah. So these eight advisors have been really helpful. I actually have not bought properties where I've spent upwards of 40 or $50,000 on due diligence because after doing all that homework, that's when you find out something's wrong. You don't go buy the property because you spent 40,000 on due diligence. If it turns out to be the wrong property, you lose the 40 and you're glad you're not going to lose everybody's million right. by doing something stupid. Right. And my old mentor, Steve Podolsky, who I worked for in 1981, is one of my top advisors. He still invests with me, even though I left the family business and he he stayed obviously with his family, but he and I stayed friends and he's a great advisor. I have a 96 year old advisor who's been in real estate for 60 years. And these are just two of the members of that advisory group. Um, there's a woman uh, by the name of um, Brene Brown, who is a very well- My wife loves her. She's fantastic. She My wife is about, like, listen to this Brene Brown podcast. Listen, like she loves her. And so I get I get those clips from her. Yeah, she's, she's great. She's, she's brilliant. great. And, and her specialty is really talking about um, vulnerability and shame and where it comes from. And I, I take walks sometimes at night in my neighborhood and I put my headphones on and I listen to Brene Brown. And the, the message that I've gotten from her is we're all vulnerable, we're all gonna make mistakes. We're all gonna have things happen that are not gonna be favorable to us. But you have to recognize that being vulnerable is not being weak. Being vulnerable is being strong and so vulnerability to me is everything. And when I talk to my investors, I say, there's a risk you could lose money. Even with no mortgage, there's still a risk. Everything doesn't always go our way. And we have tremendous staying power, but we're not perfect and bad things can happen. Tenants go bankrupt and there could be a tornado or 
there could be a downturn in the economy. And if we can avoid the shame and we can avoid feeling like we made a stupid impulsive decision, impulsivity is the worst thing. People who are impulsive are essentially, in my opinion, in real estate, if you're impulsive in real estate, you're, you're nothing different than a gambler. You're a compulsive gambler if you keep buying things without knowing exactly what you're getting into. And that's where I think the mistakes are made. It's just not doing enough diligence and homework. If you do the diligence and you do your homework and something goes against you and you're vulnerable and you say, hey, I did my best and, and you admit the mistake as fast as you can and you apologize to whoever's affected. That's what I, that's what I believe in. I don't think you end up back on the couch if, if uh, that's the approach. It's not, hey, I'm the biggest guy and I got the fanciest car and I got jet. You know, those guys, many of them are going to be in big trouble because that's a bunch of BS for the most part. The ones who talk about the fact that there's real risk and there's downside and if we're lucky and we do things right, it'll be great. And if we're unlucky, it could be moderate, not great, or it could it could turn bad. And I just want people to know that. And I want to make the best decisions possible. And that's my passion is having good judgment and not being impulsive. Because I have a tendency, I went out and got 70 lawns in two days. I can be very impulsive. I hired 30 kids. I can be very impulsive. That all happened in a week. Yeah. I, I cold called Milt Podowski and told him I was going to go cold call in industrial parks. And then I did for the next few months. That was like an impulsive move. It wasn't planned. And sometimes that's good, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it, it's, it's better to really be careful and be a planner. Yeah. That, that impulse. I, I mean, it, it, it's a really, um, I imagine over time that striking that balance gets easier with, you know, more experience, more, more hard times you've gone through, like those, those things uh, get a little bit more balanced, but balancing, you know, sort of the, the um, balancing between, you know, patience and urgency to achieve and, and provide and all of that. It's, it's like, it's a very, very tricky thing. And I think, yeah, it's uh, recognizing that real estate is, is, is truly a long-term thing it, you know it's there was there were a couple of years where people were making a ton of money in a you know a year year and a half hold time and and awesome like good for them but that's not the normal and so like being uh <laughs> recognizing that that's the not not the normal and if if we were able to take advantage of that awesome that was great but you know that's not how it's going to be uh forever um who knows if it'll ever be like that again? Probably sometime. Who knows? But but again, you can't count on that. Based on you know, kind of your experience and all that you've seen through these markets, how do you structure your deals? Meaning, sort of hold times. What what's your philosophy? On, you know, because there's all different things in syndication. Like, oh, it's going to be five years, or it's going to be ten years, or it's going to be forever. I'm going to disappear from the screen for a second. Okay. This is my private placement memorandum, which answers all those questions. This is a deal where there's an 8% preferred return. And if you go through the 69 pages of this book, everything in here 
um, describes the, the upside, the risk and everything else and the structure. And the way that we structure these things is in this case, we're raising um, $13 million. And our minimum on this one's 100,000. I could bring another book over where we're raising a million and the minimum's 25,000. Yeah. They're all structured the same. So the, the way it works is the investors uh, put their money in. If you put $100,000 into a deal, uh, you get a quarterly distribution. We shoot for a minimum of seven to 8% starting returns, although we don't always get it. Sometimes we're in the sixes. And when they get their return, it keeps coming in. But if it's lower than the pref, we have to do a catch up later on so that they get the pref. Then after they get their 8%, we, my partners and I, who put this the deals together, we get a performance uh, bonus, let's call it, which is called a promote or a carried interest. And it's usually 20 to 30% of everything after 8% up until we're in the teens. And once their, their return is in the teens, then we get 50% and they get 50%. So if a deal's a, just a, a home run, we start making 50% of the profit. But at that point, they're making 14 to 16% minimum overall returns from day one including what they received in um, distributions, plus what they received from a capital event like a sale. And that's a, it's a very standard um, type of structure. I think if you looked at 50 syndicators, they're all some variety of that. The hurdle can be six, it can be seven, it can be eight. We, we just usually choose seven or eight. And we go long-term. We, we tell people that we're in the long-term hold business. We're not flippers. Flipping, I say flipping is great when things are good. And when you're a flipper and things go bad, you're really just a gambler and you'll just lose. So let's not be flippers. But if we buy a property and the next door neighbor who's a manufacturer needs to expand and we buy a building and our tenant's leaving in a year, we cold call the neighbor before we buy it, and we say, hey, we're buying the building next door. And the neighbor might say, hey, I didn't know it was for sale. And we say, oh, yeah, well, uh, we've got a year left on the lease. I had one situation where we paid $3.5 million for a property. And the day we went under contract, I showed it to someone in the neighborhood, a, a manufacturer who's in the meat business. And he looked at it and he said, I'll pay you $5 million for it. I must have this building. We didn't buy it to sell it. We bought it to keep it. But we know the neighbors and we, that's called the user sale as opposed to selling to an investor. We're not selling on a cap rate. We're selling to someone who looks at an industrial building like that. It was a 60,000 foot building as a tool for their business. They can't make their meat products with their butchers in the building unless they have a building. So if they're, if they're making $5 million a year net, uh, buying a building and putting a mortgage on it, it doesn't matter if they pay 5 million or they pay three and a half million, the extra million and a half, even at an, at an 8% interest rate is only 120,000 a year. And if they need the building to make their millions, they're going to pay whatever they have to pay. 
So that is our, that's our main exit strategy is eventually selling to someone who is a user that manufactures something and needs the building more than we do. Sure. And so and maybe important for, for listeners to understand here, and this is, in my opinion, this is how real estate should be. It doesn't matter asset class or what this is. You should be in a position to hold as long as you need to. And then you sell when the opportunity is right. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a lesson that a lot of us are learning, especially right now, given, you know, like things were going so well, it was quick. You could, you could turn, <laughs> stabilize a building, do your value add strategy and, and like immediately sell it. Um, but, but you really, you know, looking at how things are and, and, and of course, again, this goes to your track record and experience. You've seen this before <laughs> and you know, you're going to be in a much better position if you're never sort of forced to sell because you don't, you don't make, you don't really make or lose money until you exit right? Like whether that's real estate, stocks, whatever it is, right? It's uh, until then, it's just, it's just on a paper. And so, yeah, I, I, I love that, you know, sort of perspective where it's like, we plan to take this for a long time, but if we can make a million and a half dollars in a couple of weeks, that's probably worth taking. It's yeah. just being open to the opportunity when, when it arises. Exactly. You know, I, I have a very, uh, funny story for you. It's not so funny. Uh, in 2007, I was raising money for uh, a fund at the time we were doing funds. And there was a guy who lived in Highland Park, which is where I was from. And I knew him from some golf outings. And I called him up and I said, uh, I know you run a big business and you probably invest a lot of money. I said, I'd love to meet with you and talk to you about my real estate and he said well why don't you come over every Wednesday my wife and my three adult children and I meet around the dining room table we make decisions on investments so in 2007 I went and I sat with them at their dining room table and I said so uh, I'd love you to invest in this fund and he said well tell us about your worst deal I said well I've never actually lost money on any deal and he said Meeting's over. I said, what? I told you I never lost money. Wouldn't you want to go with someone who's never lost money? He says, no, I'd want to go with someone who's lost money a bunch of times and knows how to recover from a bad thing happening. And you don't know how. And when the market goes bad, you are going to have problems. See that couch? He was right. The next year, the next year. Yeah. And I believe that right now we may be in a place in the economy where people who are cocky and have never lost are going to be in a position where they don't know how to handle it. And that guy was right. I call them because I have this $13 million deal and I'm raising money. And I thought maybe he'll put a million in. It's been a while because that was 2008 and this is 15 years later. So I called them and I said, Hey, Bill, uh, it's Joel. He says, Hey, how you doing? I said, great, great. Um, you know, you were right about, someone needing to know how to take losses. He says, yeah, I remember that. I said, so I have this deal I'd like you to look at. I've taken some losses and I've learned a lot and things are different and we're gonna do it debt-free so that it's safer because I get it now. He says, I still have a bad taste in my mouth. You're out. <laughs> well, 
I guess <laughs> I guess you tried, but yeah, the it it's uh it it's just so true, and and it's just um really a fascinating thing to see. I I, I have this like fear in. I mean, I, I, you listened to some things you said. I, I'm I'm a veterinarian. A lot of my uh, friends, colleagues, and and including investors and in, in private, they're they're veterinarians, and and it, it's a um, it's a profession where we don't get a lot of financial education. I guess it was, which is probably an understatement, but but that's kind of the reality of it. And so I'm I'm it's 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 within my mission to to educate and and you know share these opportunities with other vets. My biggest my biggest fear about all this is that we are like people are going to see some deals go bad, whether they're veterinarians or, or whatever, and just stop investing. And it's like, that's, <laughs> that's the worst thing you can do is, is have one go bad and just say, ah, this is, I'm done. Like I'm not doing this anymore. Cause then you've only suffered the loss. Like you have to keep, <laughs> you have to stick with it and realize that this is, there's going to be some, ups and downs and wins and losses and and learn from each one whether you're you know actively or passively investing it's 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 uh that i i believe that that to be true and i feel like your your story and in, in your kind of experience just reinforces that for me anyway yeah there, there's an old, old saying it's not how many times you get knocked down it's how you get back up after being knocked down and what you learn from it and how you can get back up the next time even better yeah and that's that's really what what you're what you're talking about is people who have losses of course they're gonna have losses nothing no no tree grows all the way to the sky there's a limit and sometimes it gets struck by lightning in a storm and it's nobody's fault you know boom bolt of lightning beautiful tree comes down it, it happens and you have to figure out, well, am I going to plant two new trees there? And what, what kind of trees are they? Are they oaks or are they maples? And you just have to figure out how to move forward. And that really is, again, the good judgment is what I think keeps people from spiraling into, into despair. Because if you use good judgment and you know you did, you can be disappointed, but you can get back up again and feel that you're, you're a solid thinker. Yeah, I love that. Um, I really could talk about this all day. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't want to keep you forever. I want to uh, get the opportunity to you know, sort of ask you the questions that I do, um, and I'm gonna have to have you back on another time because this has been great. But um, you, you've already touched on it. I always ask people, as you know, like you know, I ask people, what is your why? I, I want to give the opportunity to expand. If I, I know you said good judgment, and and I think that's uh, it's truly the first time I've ever had someone answer that way and it's such a um like insightful uh way to answer the question because it is it is so important and and it's probably something that i would you know well you you sort of alluded to this but like that's something that's going to evolve over time and improve over time if you're willing to take the hits learn adjust you know kind of kind of go through it you know and keep keep growing from there so but I, I do I do wanted to give you that opportunity to expand if you have any more on that or I can uh, move to the next question, whatever whatever you'd like. I do have an expansion on that. Uh, because of the fact that I've been doing this for so long, I have a 
a very large group of people that I'm close to. That I that I uh, confide in, that confide in me. We're we're um, we're business partners for a long time. We're friends. We're we're family. Whatever it might be. And one of the things that I like the best, I come as I said, I come from a family of therapists. My daughter is also a therapist, in addition to my dad and my mom. So, I think that everybody, at some time or other, has a struggle. Whether it's they're having trouble sleeping with a lot of anxiety and they don't know why, or they're having a family dispute. Every family has disputes. I've never seen a family business where someone didn't hate somebody for some reason. And I like to help people when I can to solve for what's really bothering them. If I have some ability to, uh, first of all, listen to what's going on and then give them some idea of maybe a way to help. I really, I enjoy that. Um, I, I probably have three or four calls a day where people call and they say, hey, I've got this thing going on. I'd like some input from you. So I'm like there, I'm like, you know, I've got my eight advisors who help me. I'm for some people, I'm their advisor. And I, I love that. That is a big why for me. Yeah. Is to help people if I can look back and see in my level of experience if there's anything I can do to give them some guidance. That that's really great. Yeah. I I and I think uh you would be a phenomenal advisor, just again, like your perspective on things what you've what you've experienced all of it I, I think uh I can I can understand why people would come to you for guidance <laughs> I'm already thinking about it in my head so no I think I, I it, it makes total sense um second question uh is <laughs> tell us something about yourself that isn't common knowledge special skill a hobby just anything to let people um, know you a little better outside of the real estate world Sudoku. Oh, all right. All right. Uh, this is without a doubt one of my favorite forms of relaxation. I took a meditation class. The fellow who, who was my meditation leader, his name was Om. No joke. O-M. Om. <laughs> and there were a bunch of older ladies and my friend Howard and I, who were in our 50s, went to see Om every Wednesday. And we did some meditating and he taught us many meditation techniques. One is called uh, intermittent nostril, uh, where you breathe in one and out the other and you use your thumb. And another one is sitting in the darkness and just being quiet. A lot of breathing exercises, uh, dancing meditation where you play music and you just move around laughing meditation which is really funny you you laugh out loud with a group of people you can see in india they've got like hundreds of people wearing these white shirts and they're all sitting on the ground and they're going <laughs> it's like hundreds of people laughing so i love meditation and my meditation teacher said one of the greatest forms of meditation is sudoku he said if you do sudoku it requires complete attention if you're going to do it right and I sometimes do this because it tests me. I like to think if I can figure out this stuff and do it right without making some mistake on the way, it's a metaphor for my due diligence on properties. Like, am I thinking, well, yeah. let me test myself with a tough Sudoku. So that's that's something that 
you know, most people wouldn't bring that up, but I love <laughs> it. I do, I do one or two of these a week and I go to the really hard ones and it's fantastic. It, it's a, it's a reminder that you sometimes need to be patient and work through something methodically until you get the right answer. Yeah. I, uh, I, I have actually done very few, but, but when you bring that, I'm like, I do, I am oddly calmed by math. Like, it's just one of those, like, let the, let the numbers kind of, uh, I, I used to, um, I haven't, I don't do it anymore, but I used to run marathons and, and I would to entertain myself while I ran, cause running that far is really pretty boring. I would start like doing math of the miles and my pace and all of this stuff yeah, and yeah. it would be it would just be enough of a distraction that i that i and, and it's still like I, I i don't know i mean i i just enjoy numbers that's a I form guess. of meditation actually walking meditation and running meditation yeah. and and doing math in your head is also a form of that there there's hundreds of forms of meditation which really just means being in the present and not letting your mind go someplace else where yeah. you're not present but you can be very present doing math and doing this kind of thing and running and there's lots of great ways to meditate yeah yeah i may give the sudoku a try <laughs> um when, when people hear this and they want to reach out to you what's what's the best place to we have a website it's brit properties b-r-i-t one t properties.com and um there's an article that everybody should read, which is why you should not invest with us. That's not the name of it, but that's, that's the gist of it. And it talks about all the things that you should ask before investing. And if you don't, you shouldn't invest. Yeah. Okay, great. And we'll put that in the show notes. Um, final question for you. What piece of advice would you give to someone who is uh, they want to get started in real estate. They hear this, they're inspired by you and they want to kind of take the next steps. Where would you tell them to start? Get a great mentor. Steve Podolsky, my friend, Nate Wagner, Milt Podolsky, Rich Levy. I had these guys who taught me the business. They are, there's nothing really new in the world. It's just a matter of you learning what other people know. And, and I learned from them and I'm I'm standing on their shoulders, really, and getting a great mentor who's willing to share and listen is is for sure number one piece of advice. Yeah, I uh, I I agree. I've had some. I've been lucky to have some some great mentors that has been just vastly improves your like it, it improves your ability to be successful. I think it like just that ultimately, you know, kind of everybody's going to have things go wrong. Everything's going to, everybody's going to have mistakes, but it, it really helps that you can learn from someone else who's been through it. Um, Joel, this was amazing. Uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today, uh, sharing everything that you did. I think people are going to really love this episode. Um, but thank you so much for, for taking the time out. And thank you for doing the podcast. It's really helpful. I think you help people. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. Folks listening, I know you're going to love this one. Uh, please like, rate, and review the show so we can get more great guests like Joel. And thank you all for listening. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. 
My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.